Um, today's scripture is found in Exodus chapter 17. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us, our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks, Jess. Good morning, everybody. All right, Exodus chapter 17. So um, on April 25th, 1988, uh, they began tests on a, a power facility to see how much they could reduce the power and still be safe. And they found the answer to their question in the early morning hours of April 26th, 1988. In fact, it was precisely at 1.23 uh, a.m. and 45 seconds, and that's when, uh, some of you know, you've heard the story, you've seen the HBO series, when the, the, uh, the, the, the nuclear power station at Chernobyl, in Chernobyl, Ukraine, exploded, sending a fireball into the sky. It, it uh, blew the, 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 the giant steel lid off of the reactor. Uh, killed two people instantly and sent massive quantities of, of radioactive material into the atmosphere. Two people died. They said something like 28 people died within this, the official report anyways, 28 people died within the next month. Uh, the, the, the blast was, the, the, the amount of radiation, I should say, that was released in the atmosphere was was uh, uh, at a quantity high above both the bombs that were, uh, that were uh, put on Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. Uh, the, the, the radioactivity was so bad, some of you have heard this, that they had to create a 1,600 square mile exclusion zone where no one could live. They had to move everybody out of there. Now estimating that it will take until 2065 just to do the cleanup uh, but it will remain uninhabitable. That area will remain uninhabitable for, depending on which scientist you talk to, for anywhere between 3,000 and 20,000 years. Um, I think it was in right after it, they had to, they had to entomb it. In, in some kind of like, you know, tomb and, and, and because of the degradation of that material, they came back in 2017 and put what they call a sarcophagus on top of it again. 
I mean, this is, a, this is one of those episodes that when you hear the words, the name Chernobyl, most people, either because you saw the series or you know the history, you were around when that happened or you've played Call of Duty, know about Chernobyl. You know that something really terrible happened. It's a byword, if you will, of a kind of cautionary tale of one of a failed leadership or one of, of how far can you test power. And when we come to Exodus chapter 17, here's what I want you to see. Exodus 17 becomes this word that everybody is going to know now in the history of Israel. We start off in chapter 17 and verse 1, and Israel finds itself at a place called Rephidim. But by the end of it, you just heard Jess read, if you, if you read along with her, that, it, that it, by the end of it, Moses calls it uh, Massah and Meribah. He calls it uh, Grumbleberg and Testingville is basically what it amounts to, right? Because of something that happens. And this is going to be looked back on in Israel's history over and over and over again. The psalmists are going to talk about it. The writers of the New Testament are going to talk about it. In fact, let me show you a couple of examples. This is one, Psalm 95, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, proof though they had seen my work. This is directly out of Exodus 17. The writer of Hebrews is going to say in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 that it's this warning against unbelief and rebellion and quarreling and, and, and grumbling. It's even a warning against idolatry, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us. And then, of course, in fact, grab your Bibles and turn with me over to, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I want you to keep your finger here and in Exodus 17 because here's Paul looking back on Exodus 17 and listen to how he talks about this. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all ate the, uh, from the, drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they do. Now, this is a very handy passage because essentially we get the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying to us, do you want to know what Exodus 17 is about? Here it is. Do you want to know what the takeaway is? Here it is. These things were given to us an example that we might not desire evil like they did. In other words, don't do what they did. Now, there's kind of two dangers in preaching. There's two dangers in us reading our Bibles. And we talk about this at the very beginning. If you go back and listen to the very first uh, message in Exodus, we talked about one of the things we want to be sure we do is that we understand kind of the flow of redemptive history. We don't just isolate and turn Scripture into a bunch of moralistic teachings, right? We don't want to veggie tale the Scriptures. Y'all know what I'm talking about there? How many of you remember veggie tales, right? And this was what, what, what even Phil Vischer, who was one of the original creators, has looked back and said, I made a mistake because what I did is I turned all these Bible stories into just moralistic tales, Aesop's fables. Here's what they are. Here's the example. Follow this example. Don't follow this example. And it just become be patient. But he said, I didn't have the gospel there. 
So there's a mistake that we can make by saying that everything you read is just for you to have an example. But the other mistake we can make is saying nothing's to be an example. Everything's spiritual. There's no examples for you to follow. That's simply not true. We have an example here. These things were written as an example that you might not desire evil like they did. We have an example with Jesus in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount where he's preaching about this, if you will, manifesto of the kingdom and he talks about the, the Pharisees and he says to the people listening, do not be like them. Don't follow their example. You have Paul, 1 Corinthians 11 and other places saying, follow me, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So there are times when we are called to follow the examples. We can say to our children, be courageous like David, dare to be a Daniel, but don't stop there. Connect it to Jesus. Show it how he's the hero. And this is exactly what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Did you see it? You see what Paul does there? Let me go back and show you Exodus, this bad example of what they did. And at the same time, I want you to see Christ was there. I want to make sure you don't miss that. See, Exodus 17 is not simply a moral tale. Yes, it's a moral tale. We're not supposed to do this, but, it's, but it points us ultimately to Christ. So, so if you're there and in, in, in just stay in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for a while, but actually back up just a few verses and notice, I want you to sort of see the flow of Paul's thought here. Watch what he does. Starting in chapter 9, verse 24, he basically talks about himself. Don't you know that everybody who runs in a race runs to, runs to win the prize, right? You don't run to lose, you want to win. He says, this is what I want to do, right? They do it to receive a perishable crown, we an imperishable. So I don't run, Paul says, aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Paul says, man, I don't want to be disqualified. I want to win the race of faith here and to do that is going to require me to be disciplined in myself. Self-control. And then he has that first word in chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Like I'm, I'm going to finish this thought now. I want the same thing for you. I want you to finish this race. I don't want you to be disqualified. I don't want you to miss out. Um, now, now notice a couple things. Look, look at verse, uh, chapter 10. We're in 1 Corinthians still. And he calls them brothers, or we could say brothers and sisters. Now that is, if you know your Bibles, you know any, right, right. Th that, that is a term that Christians used for each other. Paul assumes he's talking to Christians. These are his brothers and sisters, right? In fact, he says, you know about our fathers. Now, he's writing into a culture, Corinth, that has some Jews, but is predominantly Gentile. But he looks and says, these fathers are our spiritual fathers. You are my brothers. You are my sisters, so I want you to hear this, right? So in other words, he looks at these spiritual fathers back in Exodus 17 and says, look, there's a lesson for us there that I want to give to you, Corinth. And what does he say? What's, what's his point? We'll go back, just look at it again in chapter 10, 
Okay, watch, look how he does this. I want you to be aware, brothers, that our fathers were all under a cloud, all passed through the sea, all baptized, all ate the same spiritual food, all ate the same spiritual drink. All of them. All of them were on the journey from Egypt to the promised land. All of them saw the miracles. All of them saw the the waters part. All of them ate the manna. All of them drank this miraculous water. This happened to every single one of them. If If we were today, here's what we would say. They were all part of the visible people of God. They went to church. They sang the songs. They sang them full-throated this morning. They got in growth groups. They went to classes. They ran around with Christian friends. They saw lives transformed. They, they, they showed up Sunday after Sunday, right? They, they called each other brothers and sister. In other words, Paul goes, these were insiders. These were not people that didn't know anything about God. They knew and experienced all of these, but look at verse 5 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And if you read the rest of the story and you go to Numbers, you're going to find out an entire generation of Israel didn't make it to the promised land. They missed. They didn't Get there. Now, now, what does this mean? Is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that you can lose your salvation? No. Is he saying that the golden chain that he describes in Romans chapter 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and those whom he also predestined, he also called, and those whom he also called, he also justified, and those whom he also justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Can we break that golden chain? The answer is no. Somebody who has been justified by Christ cannot be unjustified. But is it possible to be part of the visible people of God? To go to church, to sing songs, to witness God's grace, to be even baptized and identify with Jesus, to join the church, to be in a growth group and still be an outsider? Yes. Yes. Listen to Jesus. If you don't believe me, chapter 7 of Matthew, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Stop right there. When, when you see this, Lord, Lord, Father, Father in, in scripture, it's, this, it's a statement of intimacy. I believe I'm intimate with Jesus. Not everybody who says that, but, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's frightening. Some of you know the name Ravi Zacharias. Lots of you know that name. I mean, here's a man who had a worldwide uh, ministry, literally. 
probably went to every country in the world, preached to literally hundreds of millions of people, a renowned apologist. If you were to think of the echelon of Christianity, he would sit somewhere in the, you know, in, in the stars with others. A man looked up to, a man revered, lionized when he died. And it came out last year, proven that Ravi Zacharias had been sexually abusing women for years. And I won't go into all the sordid details, but what, what, what? Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Lord, we did mighty works in your name. I had this worldwide ministry. I went everywhere. People heard about Jesus from my lips. I have no idea what happened to Ravi on his deathbed. I have no idea. So I, I can't tell you standing here, hey, I'm confident he's not with Jesus. I can only say this. If there was no repentance, if he did not put his faith in Jesus, if he's not grieved over sin like this, there is no way that the Bible is going to affirm him. He would be one that God would say, I am not pleased you will be overthrown. So I, I, listen, I can't imagine, hear me, anything worse. Let's take it out. But Ravi's a horrific example. But listen to me. I just wonder. I don't, I don't know who you are. I just wonder how many people play at Christianity. How many people come here week after week? How many people tune in and watch online? How many people sort of, hey, I'm involved. I do all these things. And to find out in the end, you have missed it completely because you thought you were an insider, but it turns out you're an outsider because you never put your faith, your hope in Jesus Christ. It's terrifying. It's a warning God is not pleased. Now, now, why wasn't God pleased with the people in Exodus 17? Okay, go back to Exodus 17 now, and I want to just show you a few things. I want you to see, really, the biggest thing here is that they quarreled and grumbled. Okay, we've seen this before, but look at it again, right? Therefore, verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses, said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people uh, thirsted for there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They grumbled. They quarreled. Maybe Paul is thinking of this. We've mentioned this a few times in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, do everything without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and pure children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In other words, listen, the world grumbles. The world quarrels. The world complains. That shouldn't be people who have been rescued from sin and slavery and have an eternal home in heaven. That just shouldn't be us. Now, let, let's talk about this. Because uh, is Israel stupid? Because in chapter 15, they didn't have water. God provided water. Chapter 17, they don't have water. And they grumble again. Are they stupid? Well, yes. But so are we. Right? I mean, how, how many times does God have to prove himself faithful before you never doubt again? What's the answer? Always once more. 
Just one more, God. Just another. Just another. I don't know that I can trust you. And so they quarrel. Now, quarreling, I was talking to a, a, some friends this week and, and uh, one of them was, was, was raised and learned British English. But I would just say this, in America, that's just not a word we use very often. And when we do, it sounds really polite. I quarreled with my wife this morning. Oh, I'm sorry, right? It's not a polite word. It literally has the idea in the Hebrew of um, confrontation, of perhaps physical violence, of pushing and shoving. You might remember when Abraham's servants, uh, I think it was, went, to, went and, and, and got in a fight over a well and they said they quarreled over a well. That idea, there was probably, they were probably shoving, punching, had to be pulled apart. This, this, is, this is what I think makes sense of why Moses can say in verse four, did you see this? So Moses cried, Lord, what shall I do to this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Like God, things are getting out of hand. They are getting ready to, to, to kill me here. There's a riot fomenting among the people. This is not some polite disagreement going on here. Most like this is getting crazy. And why did they quarrel? Because in the end, they didn't trust God. He brought them to Rephidim. Like, now listen, uh, Moses didn't take out a map of the wilderness and go, you know what, today, let's go to Rephidim. I hear there's no water there. Why did they go where they went? If you go back to Exodus chapter 13, we learn why they did what they did. It said that God would, would be in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And when he moved, they moved. So they're just following God. God is one. This is the key. God is leading them to a place with no water. God is leading them into a wilderness where there is utter and can only be utter trust. And they're quarreling, they're grumbling because they're saying, this shouldn't be that way. God's saying, will you trust me? Will you trust me to, be, to provide water? Will you see that my past track record will actually indicate present and future performance? Listen, if you've walked with Jesus for a while, you know this. You know that you can look back and go, God's past track record with me is probably a great indication of his future performance. If he has been faithful then, he will be faithful now. And we see this over and over. But they go, we don't, we don't want to trust him. We don't like things this way. Now, um, so, so this is why Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, is saying, hey, uh, they were given his example, don't be like them. Don't be like them how? Well, certainly grumbling and complaining. But let me show you a couple other things. Don't be like them in this way. Don't test the Lord. You see that in verse two? Look, you're, why are you coming to me? Why do you test God like this? They tested God. And by the way, that word test is used in scripture to, very often to talk about like, it, um, it has the idea of a legal action. It's used in legal settings. Let's say it that way. In other words, they're suing God. <laughs> they're, they're saying, we, we don't like where this is. We're taking you to court, God. Uh, we we're we're going to accuse you of attempted murder. You see that in verse 3. You know, you brought us out here to kill us. They've said this before. 
Um, so they do what C.S. Lewis says, they, they put God in the dock. Now, that's not a familiar uh, term to, to uh, Americans. Um, it, we would say it this way, you put God in the witness stand. So you've ever seen a, a, a British show that has like a, a courtroom scene. They have this place where the witness comes up to and there's this, there's this area that's, you know, kind of this fenced off area and he stands right there and faces the court. That's called in British terminology, the dock. And C.S. Lewis says that modern man puts God in the dock. Listen to how he says this, as only Lewis can. He says, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Prove yourself, God. I have some questions for the witness. Show me that you're among us. Does the prisoner have anything to say for himself? God, you're the prisoner. We're putting you on test. Tell me why the plane crashed. Tell me why the tsunami happened. Tell me why children died. Tell me why there's a pandemic. Tell me why there was a mass shooting. God, you are in the dock. You prove yourself to us. We do this all the time. Remember the story of Job? Righteous man, like there's nobody on the earth like him. God afflicts him. And, and, and Job essentially does this. Oh, if I could put God in the dock, I would question him and I would find out that I am righteous and I didn't do anything and this is God's fault. And God shows up in Job chapter 38 and what does he say? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, Job, and you make it known to me. How different from David, perhaps even learning from this in Psalm 139. At the very end of Psalm 139, he says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know that idea behind search me? It, it, it has this, again, another legal kind of uh, idea to it. It's God put me in the dock, put me on the witness stand and cross-examine me. God, you're the tester, not me. You're the one. You don't receive counsel from anybody. You don't get it from me, right? I do. You don't repay me. You don't need my advice. You don't submit to my testing. I must submit to you. Listen, fundamental to the heart of a Christian is somebody who will say, God, I don't understand what I'm going through. I don't understand what you're doing, but I don't have the answers. I trust you. This does not mean you don't lament. Some of you are going through very hard times. And the Bible would teach you to lament. It doesn't mean you don't ask questions. It doesn't mean you don't cry out. It doesn't mean you don't say, why God? But it does mean you don't test him. You say, search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me and then lead me out of this. Don't test God. That's one way we're not supposed to be like them. But then the second way is 
Don't doubt the Lord. Don't doubt Him. Verse 3, they're, they're basically saying, you, you brought us out here to kill us. They've said this before, right? I'm doubting that you have good motives. You're trying to harm us. God, it can't possibly be. It cannot possibly be that you want to put us through difficulties for our good. There's no way that that's the kind of God you are. So you must be up to no good. Look, I, I, I hope I don't have to justify this, right? I mean, isn't, this, is, this is so much of your Bible. This is Jesus over and over to disciples. They hated you, they're gonna hate me. They persecuted you, they're gonna persecute me. You're gonna suffer in this world. There's going to be troubles. There's going to be problems. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Yes, God will. I just heard somebody say it yesterday, God will not give you more than you can bear. Yes, he will. All the time. So that you go, I can't do this. I got to lean on God. But, but they also doubted his presence. She said in verse seven, is the Lord among us or not? I mean, look, if God was with us, we wouldn't have difficulties. Life would be easy. All of our needs, our wants would be met and fulfilled. So because that's not happening and we're back in this place where there's no water, God can't be with us. Same thing, right? Don't doubt God. Don't, and certainly don't doubt his goodness. Listen, God is more present in some of the hardest situations of life. I, I want to read you something. I just, Gracie and I were reading this this morning. I came across this. It's not, a, I won't be able to put it up here because they don't have it. I just saw this this morning. Here is a, a young girl. I think she's in her 20s who uh, diagnosed with uh, terrible cancer. She blogged about it and she says this, listen to this. I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees in my mother's crooked hands and the blanket my friend left for me in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but will repeat until I do. What a great line. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there. Even now, I have heard it said that people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. That's profound. Even in all that, God is good. Don't doubt his goodness. They did. But finally, don't miss the Lord. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10 now. Did you see what Paul said? In chapter 10 and verse 4, he says, and, the, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Don't miss Jesus in this. Now, it's understandable Israel would miss it, but not a New Testament Christian. We must not. Now, what does Paul mean? What is this spiritual rock that followed them? Do you see how Paul said that? 
Here's what you need to know. There's an entire rabbinic tradition that would have been swirling around in Paul's day that would say, that handed down in Paul's day, that would say that, 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 that the rock was like a portable well. Some traditions said that rock would actually roll behind Israel and come with them everywhere they went. Others said Moses picked it up like a portable well and took it wherever he went. So, so, and it kind of makes sense, right? That, that they would say, where do we get food? Manna every day. Where do we get water? The rock. And interestingly, you will never hear in Exodus again that they thirsted ever again. But what is this rock? What's Paul doing? Um, whatever it means, his point is clear. The rock is Christ. Christ is present. Christ is there in all your wanderings. Christ is providing. Christ is protecting. Christ is all you need. We're going to find out in the New Testament, Christ is the bread of life, the manna from heaven. Christ is the water of life who satisfies our thirst. And by quarreling and grumbling, what are they doing? They're rejecting the means God is giving them of their salvation. The rock who is Christ. They're showing they didn't believe. So God is displeased with them. You don't believe? You're going to be left in the wilderness. You'll never make it to the promised land. Has God proven himself to you? Ed Clowney is a theologian, a, a teacher, and he he was preaching a sermon where he referenced a, a play that was popular in Europe right after uh, World War II and was called The Sign of Jonah. And essentially, real quickly, here's all it was. It was simply asking the question, who's responsible for the Holocaust? They're pointing fingers. Oh, the guards and Hitler and Nazi Germany and these people are that people. And they get to the end and go, no, it can't possibly be on a human scale. This is something God is responsible for this. So we must put God on trial. And so they do in this play. They put God on trial and they find him guilty and they sentence him. And listen to the sentence. Um, Connie describes it this way. He says, the characters decide that God must become a human being, a wanderer on earth, deprived of his rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty. He himself shall die and lose a son and suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. And of course, that's exactly what happened. God sent his son into the world and people did to him what they wanted to do to Moses. Moses, right? Moses, this, the man of God, the man who stands in God's place. What does he do? He goes and strikes the rock, capital R. He strikes the symbol of salvation with the symbol of God's authority and power. Christ submitted to the blow of God's justice so that out of him would flow life for his people. It was the will of God, Isaiah says, to crush him. He was smitten, stricken by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace upon him, and by his stripes were healed. The rock took our judgment, and from him flowed the water of life. Oh, Christian, don't test the Lord. Don't doubt the Lord. Don't miss the Lord. Let's pray. Father.
Thank you for your word. And thank you for the ways that we see that you point this to Jesus. And I just pray, oh God, Lord, there are people in this room that are suffering and our temptation is to grumble and complain and test you, put you in the dock. May it never be, God. Rather, may we say with David, search me, O God. See if there be any grievous, wicked way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. We would not doubt your goodness, but we would see, we would, Father, some of us going through very low periods would find it's there that we meet Jesus on the bathroom floor in powerful ways. We would not miss you, Lord. I pray if there's anybody this morning that has missed Jesus, that has surrounded themselves with all the trappings of Christianity, modern Christianity, Lord, that, and yet they've missed you, that today would be a day when they would see that the rock is Christ, the, the satisfaction of their soul, the thing they thirst for the most, their heart's desire, and that you would open their eyes to see, unstop their ears so they might hear pull out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh that they might receive the water of life and by drinking they would never thirst again. Father, do what only you can do today, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.